This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Nick McClellan. Nick is the Pacific Affairs correspondent for Inside Story magazine, and he joined me to talk about the upcoming independence referendum in New Caledonia. We discuss the significance of this second referendum, as well as what it would mean to New Caledonia should they vote yes or no on October the 4th. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRRFM with me, Amy Mullins. It's so lovely to be with you on this Tuesday morning, as I do, between 9am and noon. And anyone who has listened to this show for a little while would have heard the dulcet tones of Nick McClellan, who has a wonderful voice for radio, I've got to say, and he's also an excellent writer and journalist. Um, I was really excited to hear this year that Nick was awarded the Sean Dorney Grant for Pacific Journalism by the Walkley Foundation, which means that he's been producing some really wonderful long-form pieces of journalism. He's been doing some fantastic interviews, and anyone who's heard from Nick would know that he does spend a huge amount of his time in the Pacific on the ground in various places, including Fiji. Um, and so given the coronavirus, it must be particularly tough to not be there at the moment. Um, but we're going to be talking with Nick, who has great connections um, with people in New Caledonia and the rest of um, Fiji, for example, and other Pacific islands. We're going to be talking about a really important issue that we have discussed in the past. Um, there was a previous uh, referendum on independence in New Caledonia. Um, and that was only about two years ago. And we're now seeing another referendum on the same question happening in October. Um, and this is a really important issue for people in New Caledonia. And um, and we're going to be talking about that. Nick has written an article for Inside Story, of which he is now the Pacific Affairs Correspondent for Inside Story. And he's also works as a correspondent for Islands Business Magazine. So I welcome Nick McClellan now. And thank you so much, Nick, for joining us again. Amy, great to be with you. Yeah. Yeah, look. Two years ago at this time, um, I was actually working in New Caledonia reporting on the lead-up to the referendum. It's quite a unique situation in decolonisation. You know, New Caledonia's got a, a multiracial population. The Indigenous Kanak people, uh, Melanesian people, are, are mostly in favour of independence, but many uh, European, French uh, arrivals over many generations are... Uh, People who've come from other parts of the Pacific, such as Wallace and Futuna and other French territory, are opposed to independence. And so 20 years ago, the people signed an agreement called the Numir Accord, and that set out the gradual transition of powers from Paris to um, New Numir, the capital of New Caledonia. It set up a new Congress and provincial assemblies, political institutions, and it created a unique situation that at the end of this 20-year transition, um, there could be a referendum on independence, but not just one. If the vote was no in favour of staying with the French Republic, then um, a second and indeed a third referendum could be held. And that's quite unique in the history of decolonisation around the world. So, as you said, the first vote was held two years ago, November 2018, 
The polls at that time predicted that there would be a significant defeat for the independence movement. Indigenous Kanak are only about 40% of the population, so they're a minority in their own country. And the feeling was that, you know, there'd be a real setback for the independence cause. Politicians I interviewed at the time said that 70% of people would vote no for independence, uh, no for staying with France, and only about 30% yes for independence. When the final poll came on the night of 4th of November 2018, in fact, 43% of people said they supported independence. Not a victory, obviously, but close enough to 50 to give everyone a shock. And that's yeah. why we've come to this second vote, which will be held in just uh, 10 days' time, the 4th of October. Mm. It is really exciting to see, you know, given that there was such a close result, that it is being put to the, the population again. And, um, you know, also really interesting to hear about those dividing lines, um, particularly uh, the overwhelming support for independence among the Indigenous Kanak people um, who make up nearly 40% of the population. In terms of um, the, the intentions voting intentions of various uh, parts of the population, do you think it divides fairly neatly along those lines or does it segment across other interest groups or um, factions? It's changing. You know, it's clear that the the vast bulk of, of the Kanak people support independence. There are certainly some who don't. And um, there's also the majority of non-Kanak voters, people of European Polynesian, Asian heritage uh, stay favour staying with France. You know, that's a pretty clear dividing line. But it's not that clear. As I say, the Canucks are less than 40% of the population, but they got 43% of the vote last time. So mm. they're there. The other factor that happened was a lot of people didn't vote. Voting is not compulsory in um, France, and so turnouts vary, and turnout varied across the country so um, overall, about 80%, I think 81% of people participated in the referendum, but that still leaves a pool of about 33, 34,000 people who didn't vote last time. And what we're seeing now is that both supporters and opponents of independence are very actively campaigning on the ground, trying to rally not only their own supporter base, but um, uncommitted voters. Mm. Uh, and that involves explaining to people you know, what would be the costs and benefits of moving from being a, a French dependency to being an independent and sovereign nation. Um, and some of that's done through hope, some of that's done through fear, some of that's done through analysis. You know, when I was there in 2018, some people of European heritage were worried about losing the French passport, losing access to uh, work and study in the European Union, whereas others um, felt, no, look, we live in the Southern Hemisphere, our close neighbours are Australia, New Zealand, other Pacific Island countries. We should be building better, closer trade links with with uh, people in the region. And that's certainly happening today. Uh, New Caledonia's closest trade partners uh, for exports is China, Korea and Japan um, through the export of nickel, which is the main resource of the, of the country. Massive reserves of nickel ore and nickel metal are being smelted. And um, they're... Key trade partners are in the Asia-Pacific region, not in Europe. And those historic changes mean that there is a growing shift amongst the population towards a new political status. 
Yeah. Um, I want to ask a little bit about how French culture ties into this and also the particular three anti-independence parties that make up an alliance in 2020 called the Loyalists, um, and they're called the Les Républicains Caledoniens, uh, Les Républicains, and the Mouvement Populaire, Populaire Caledonien. Um, and these are three movements um, led by various people, as you write in this article, and they um, no doubt have, you know, strong views and are putting forward strong arguments against becoming independent from France. And I wondered, you know, what type of arguments are they putting forward and whether any of those arguments are tied to things like uh, French culture or French heritage and, t and, and playing into those types of colonial um, links that some people might um, see as particularly alienating to the Indigenous peoples. Absolutely, and that's really what the battle is about. Um, the the uh, Kanak Independence Coalition, the FLNKS, the Kanak National Liberation Front, says, look, we're a Pacific nation, we're not European. Um, there are people of European heritage who live here, but we're not part of Europe. And yet, bizarrely, uh, people in New Caledonia can vote for the EU Parliament in Strasbourg. Um, the French are a bit different to the British. Uh, you know, British Anglo-Saxon colonialism has always had a tradition of second-class citizens so that um, you can be uh, part of the British Empire, but you don't necessarily get the full rights of citizenship and nationality. So people in Hong Kong, for example, you know, used to be a British colony, but they couldn't automatically migrate to, to, to the United Kingdom and so on, um, don't have full rights of that British nationality. That's different for the French Empire. If you're part of French territory, French overseas territory, you're French and you have all the rights. In fact, the French constitution talks about the indivisible republic. And this has been the central tension that uh, not only Kanak people, but other supporters of independence say, well, that's a historic legacy of 19th century colonialism in the 21st century, we're certainly happy to engage with France, given the history, the language, the croissant, you know, all, all the benefits of French colonialism. Um, but uh, we want to be able to manage our own affairs. And so on a whole range of issues, everything from uh, coronavirus to climate change to uh, trading with neighbouring countries like Australia or Vanuatu and so on, Many people in New Caledonia are slowly moving towards a position where they want to run their own system. And if I can give you an example, that's been very clear with what's happening today with the coronavirus pandemic. Um, very early on, New Caledonia had a, a small number of cases uh, with international travellers coming in, some from Sydney and some from France. Um, and uh, very quickly, the independence movement and Kanak customary leaders said, no, we've got to shut the country down, shut the borders and control uh, that. So after 26 cases total, um, most of whom have now been uh, cured and out of hospital, um, New Caledonia doesn't have any COVID and they're within their own little bubble. They don't want um, too much um, pressure to bring in people from outside. And that's true like many independent Pacific countries. They want to control their borders. There are economic consequences, but they feel that that's on balance important. They look at France, which has had uh, 31,000 deaths, um, 
Uh, last, you know, they're up to sort of thousands of cases a day, and people in New Caledonia say, "Well, we don't want to follow that path. We want to run our own affairs." And they look at French Polynesia, which doesn't have the same level of authority as New Caledonia to control its own governance. And French Polynesia, under pressure from the French, opened up to tourism in mid-July. They're now up to thirteen hundred, nearly fourteen hundred cases of COVID. So people in New Caledonia say. You know, our our control of our own affairs has allowed us to ride uh, the wave um, of of coronavirus, like independent countries. And there are ten independent Pacific Island countries that, uh, despite economic consequences, consequences, have managed to survive the pandemic by just locking down and closing borders. Mm. Well, that was something I did want to ask about because, um, you know, thinking about these Pacific Island nations. There are so many that traditionally have been a holiday destination for Australians and many others. Um, and so obviously that is one kind of sector. No doubt there are, as you've you know mentioned there, um, other sectors like resources, including um, nickel for New Caledonia. But in terms of um, you know, you mentioned their French Polynesia and um, the fact that they now have 1,300 cases. When you're dealing with, um, you know, disparate islands or smaller islands, you know, grouped together like French Polynesia, how does a, a country like that actually um, deal with such a huge influx of coronavirus cases? And would it be of a similar challenge if New Caledonia um, had a, had the same thing happen for them? Absolutely. And, and, you know, the, by uh, regional standards, the health system in New Caledonia is pretty good. Um, they have a lot of funding that's come from France, from Australia, from other partners. Um, serious cases get medically evacuated to Sydney. So that's been a, a complication. People in Numea who have particular health problems that can't be treated locally are evacuated to Australia. It's only a, a few hours flight from the coast, east coast. So it's a one of Australia's closest neighbours. Um, but this has been a, a real challenge. Some countries have been harder hit by the loss of tourism. Fiji, Palau, Cook Islands are just three countries, Vanuatu, that about 40% of their economy before the pandemic came from tourism. So they've obviously had a, a huge hit. And just as Australia has faced um, tourism, hospitality, uh, the many workers who directly or indirectly employed in that area have lost jobs. And that's been a terrible economic and personal impact. New Caledonia's done better than others, though, because it's a mining country with uh, massive reserves of nickel and other strategic metals. And they've continued exporting to China during the, uh, during the last six months and so have managed to get revenues and income. On tourism too, I interviewed the president of New Caledonia just a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying that in a funny way, our tourism sector's been okay because the main hotels, the international hotels, have lost a lot of tourism, obviously, with the borders closed, but we've been using them to quarantine people flying in, very much on the Australian model. I think somewhat better run than the Australian model. Um, but um, people who normally go holidaying in France or in Australia, New Zealand, are holidaying internally. So there's actually a mini boom of tourism where highly paid French public servants who live in the capital, Numea, are going bush for the first time. Rather than travel for a holiday to Sydney, they're going up north, going to the islands, going to the rural areas. 
So the economy is sort of ticking over. Not perfect, obviously. Everyone in the world is facing a, a significant recession. But relative to some other parts of the Pacific and certainly to the other French territories like uh, French Polynesia, New Caledonia is hanging on. And um, I think that's part of the context for the referendum coming up on the 4th of October. Some people, uh, French loyalists, want to hang on to uh, the skirts of La Mer Petrie, uh, the French motherland, um, but Canucks are saying, and uh, other supporters of independence are saying, we have to run our own affairs. We have to manage things according to the realities of living in the Pacific. Um, and that's particularly evident at the time that the French government is completely distracted by, you know, a whole range of domestic challenges. Yeah, and we'll get to the French government in a moment. I do want to pick up on one issue which is um, particularly symbolic and then get into some of the more pra practical um, issues of independence. But one of them was about the Bleu Blanc Rouge flag, which is the French flag, um, and the fact that a number of... Um, a number of parties or political parties who've been engaged in this referendum have been using the French flag on their materials as, um, you know, really almost like a centrepiece um, in terms of their campaign material, the tricolor uh, French flag. And apparently um, the highest French administrative court rejected a challenge to use this French flag in the campaign for the referendum. And so it seems like there have been, I guess, a couple of um, of these more symbolic issues that have become quite contentious in terms of how one campaigns on the ground and how one changes the minds of voters um, to whichever side they're campaigning. Um, so I, I did want to ask about this kind of the ground campaign and the way that the campaign is being conducted and then um, ask a little bit about the um, particular arguments. Yeah, look, I I think it's it's a really interesting situation. I'm sorry, as I say, that I can't be there as I was two years ago. When I travel in 2018, the campaign varies from place to place. In the urban centre, Noumea, the capital, um, which is a town of about 100,000 people, uh, a bit more with greater Noumea, you know, surrounding towns and suburbs. Um, it's a very French environment and uh, and so on. So there were public meetings and town halls, uh, Lots of debate on the on the telly and on the radio, in the rural areas, particularly in the Kanak majority areas, where many people live uh, in uh, what are called Kanak tribes. These are villages, um, uh, almost like reserves um, that were historically colonial reserves. Are uh, there? The campaigning is a lot more face to face. Um, um, I went out with FLNKS teams to talk to people on the ground about you know, why they should vote yes for independence. Um, some of the questions were very um, uh, practical. Uh, people saying, well, what happens to my pension, uh, which is currently funded by the French state? Um, will I be able to go and study in France if New Caledonia is an independent country? Uh, you know, people had questions, you know, what we call hip pocket questions that are obviously relevant in any campaign. Um, there's a lot of fear, obviously, from the anti-independence side saying there'll be doom and destruction if you cut cut financial ties from Paris. Um, the independence movement said, well, look, you know, yes, we, we may lose some French funding, but we're not going to rupture ties with France. And more importantly, as an independent country, we'd be able to get development 
Stinsand support from a whole range of international institutions, from the United Nations, the World Bank, the Green Climate Fund, from neighbours like Australia and New Zealand and so on, to supplement what we can do on the ground. Um, and that point is often made too by the independence movement that there's enormous inequality in the society. You know, there are French public servants on very high salaries, European-level salaries plus hardship bonuses for being so far away from us. And at the same time, there are thousands of people living in squatter settlements around the capital, Numia. There's an enormous disparity in uh, in uh, uh, wealth and, and uh, opportunity in education and uh, not only Indigenous Kanak, but also other islanders, people from Wallace and Fortuna and, and so on, are um, amongst the poorest in the society. So they, those questions about what's in it for me are there. But as you mentioned about the flag, it's also about symbolism. It's also about hope and aspirations and emotion as much as cold, hard logic. Um, and that's where the battle of the flags is so important. The Kanak independence movement, the FLNKS, raised the flag of Kanaki, a multicoloured flag uh, uh, with Kanak symbols on it, back in 1984 when they were first created. And that's become the symbol of their struggle, their quest for independence. Um, and it's often contrasted to the French flag, the tricolour, um, and the French national anthem, the Marseillaise. Um, the Kanak movement says, look, we're not French. This isn't our symbol. Um, but at the same time, they challenged the anti-independence parties who wave the flag a lot um, by saying, hang on, the French state's supposed to be impartial in this. The French state's not supposed to be biased, and yet here you have the French national anthem, the French flag being used as a partisan symbol during the campaign. So the, the battle of the flags has been part of that debate and, and really forcing people to, to, to debate what many French nationals don't want to accept, that this is about decolonisation. This political argument is about the transition from colonial status, first created in the 19th century, to a modern 21st century nation. And the, the independence movement believes that if it doesn't happen today, then it'll happen in the future. And um, that the path, you know, uh, uh, the, one of the key leading uh, independence leaders, Paul Neotin, uh, in an interview the other day said, we will never give up uh commitment to the accession to sovereignty, the term he used, you know, to become a sovereign nation. And so whatever the result on the 4th of October, um, that, that desire will, is still there, both for older people and a younger generation. Mm. Yes, and in your piece you do mention that a third referendum is possible under the Numea Accord. So um, it is an open option if this this actual referendum doesn't go the way of the pro-independence people. And of course, it, I'm sure it does have a lot of meaning for the Kanak people um, if, if it did, if New Caledonia became a sovereign nation. Um, one of the other points that you did reference earlier was that there's been a discussion around the difference between the 2018 uh, referendum that we did discuss probably back in 2018, no doubt, but also the referendum this year, and that the French government's approach 
um, and the level of involvement that they've had between these two referendums has been quite different. Um, and some people have been critical of that. What's your thought on that and um, what have been some of the, the differences between the two referendums in terms of the French government's approach? In um, 2018, you know, this was the, the, the lead-up to the referendum in November 2018, saw an enormous amount of time and energy from the French government. The French president himself, Emmanuel Macron, visited in May 2018, just uh, six months before the referendum. And uh, the prime minister at the time, Edouard Philippe, was very involved in making the thing happen. Um, there were differences amongst supporters and opponents of independence about all sorts of questions. Uh, the limits of the voting um, role, uh, the actual question to be put to people, the date, uh, the use of flags and other symbols and so on. And Philippe expended as Prime Minister an enormous amount of time and energy um, uh, to uh, banging heads together, essentially, to come to a consensus between contending positions. And that was certainly successful. Um, there was an enormous French you know, logistic exercise to hold the referendum. It was pretty well managed and 250 magistrates and bureaucrats were flown from France to monitor the polling booths and so on. Um, Philippe himself, the Prime Minister, came the day after the referendum. Um, I actually travelled as part of a small press pool that travelled with him for the day um, and we, you know, flew around the country in French military helicopters and aircraft and key political leaders you know, the day after the vote, because there's quite a shock that the independence movement did so well at 43% compared to what polling had suggested. The fundamental difference this time is that uh, Macron, the president, is is heading towards the end of his term and hoping for re-election. He's focused more on domestic concerns. Um, and he changed the government earlier in the year as a, as a way of getting ready for the next presidential elections, which are due in 2022. Edouard Philippe is out, and a new Prime Minister, Jean Castex, was appointed. A new overseas minister, a young up-and-coming technocrat, a guy called Sebastien Lecornu, was made overseas minister. Um, and political leaders on both sides, uh, the pro-independence people and the anti-independence people that I've interviewed over the last few weeks, are very critical that they think the French government sort of dropped the ball, that there's no consensus around a whole lot of issues as you mentioned, there have been court cases over the use of the flag. The independence movement wasn't happy about the date and so on. Um, in speeches this year, um, Macron's traditional uh, 14th, day, 14th July speech on Bastille Day, the French National Day, he didn't mention New Caledonia once. Uh, when Castux was elected as Prime Minister, appointed as Prime Minister, he gave his first speech to Parliament, didn't mention New Caledonia. And people on all sides in New Caledonia are saying, hang on, we're about to vote as to whether we're going to stay in the French Republic or not. You'd think they might pay a bit of attention to us. Mm. But the, the French government is, is embroiled in terrible problems. Um, coronavirus, obviously, the health crisis in France is, is out of control. And it's a serious problem um, with growing a second, growing second wave in France, as in neighbouring countries like Britain and Spain and so on. Um, beyond that, uh, Macron has uh, faced enormous protests over recent years over the austerity policies that he's promoted. There's been a movement called the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vests protests, which have continued, uh, sparked up particularly a couple of years ago, but uh, there was a recent demonstration about a month ago of people protesting on the way that working class people are bearing the brunt 
of the economic crisis that faces the country. And France is entangled in uh, the Brexit debate. Um, France, together with Germany, are major players in the European Union, and they're currently in the midst of negotiating their future um, with, uh, with Britain. Uh, so there's a lot on the plate of the French president, the French prime minister, but people in New Caledonia are understandably a bit shitty that they're being ignored. And uh, they feel that this reflects um, the very nature of, of the colonial thing, that the, the France is willing to, to pay attention for the benefits that come from French colonialism, the enormous strategic advantage of having territories in the Pacific, the vast 7 million square kilometre exclusive economic zone. Um, that it has in the Pacific, 5 million in French Polynesia, 1.3 million square kilometres around uh, New Caledonia. These are incredible uh, economic and political strategic resources to hold. But when it comes to addressing the concerns raised by people in New Caledonia, whatever side of the independence debate they're on, there's the feeling that France is not as engaged as it was even just two years ago. Mm. Well, it's not difficult to acknowledge, you know, New Caledonia, I don't think, even in a speech. It's surprising that such an omission is made because it does um, mean a lot, I think, and says a lot about the priorities of the French government. Um, just finally, Nick, in terms of the practical changes of how New Caledonia would govern itself and ha what would happen um, if they did succeed in becoming independent through this referendum, what are some of the important practical changes or differences um, to how that country would operate and, and what would it mean for the people? The independence movement has been negotiating with the French state for some time and they've mapped out what they call a transition. Um, you know, if on the 4th of October... 51% of people voted yes for independence, it wouldn't happen the next day. Mm. Uh, they've talked about a three-year transition to address a whole range of practical and uh, political issues um, to map out a timetable for them to join the United Nations, to map out a uh, funding transition. France currently puts in quite a lot of money you know, to pay for its own public servants and, and, and so on. So the question is, would those public servants still stay there but be employees of the government of New Caledonia rather than the government of France? Um, would France continue to give money or would they walk away in a snort? Uh, um, how do they transfer the authority over the final areas, things like uh, defence, foreign policy, currency, uh, the ju judicial system and the courts? all of which are currently controlled by the French state, those final sovereign powers, as they're called, would be, you know, mapped out over probably a three-year transition, possibly a bit longer, um, until New Caledonia was its own state. So the key implications for people then would be, um, uh, you know, at what point would there be a transition from French nationality to the nationality of a new republic, probably called Kanaki New Caledonia, a bit like Papua New Guinea, a double-barrel name, but uh, reflecting the Kanak heritage and the, the, the French heritage. That would pose a challenge for many French nationals. Um, the obvious question, would you stay um, or would you want to go to France? Um, would people give up their French passport or would they be able to hold dual nationality? 
um, hold a passport both in France and uh, and in the new republic. Um, those are a whole range of administrative, legal, financial negotiations that would take place over three years. Uh, a yes vote on, on the 4th of October would point them in that path. Mm. If people vote no, there's still another chance. There's still another chance, yeah. Yeah. Do you think that any of that uncertainty because those negotiations would happen after the referendum would sway anyone either way, that the fact that they wouldn't know whether some of their concerns would be um, addressed? My suspicion is that, that people are uncertain about the future, not just because of those questions, but because of the state of the world. Um, you know, the coronavirus pandemic has had obviously not just health impacts, but enormous economic impacts. It's really transformed key issues and sectors. Um, you know, what's going to happen to global aviation? New Caledonia is, you know, 20,000 kilometres on the other side of the world from France. If global aviation doesn't spring back, it's going to be very costly to fly from France to New Caledonia. So that's got huge implications for their economy, for their society, for their culture. Um, what's going to happen with the health system? Um, will the borders need to remain closed or could New Caledonia become part of a bubble with neighbouring countries? And, you know, there's been talk of a trans-Tasman travel bubble. Um, what about a, a Pacific travel bubble? And those discussions are going on within the region. Um, people, frankly, don't want a bubble with France, given they've got 30,000 dead from COVID, yeah. speaking bluntly, with all, all respect to the people who've died. It's a tragedy, and people in New Caledonia look at it with horror, by and large. Uh, they're really concerned about the French compatriots. Um, so that uncertainty, I think, will probably weigh on people as they go to the polls on 4th of October. And I wouldn't be surprised if people are, are reluctant to take the leap into the future, given that uncertainty. What is likely to happen, I think, though, is a change in the, the score a few points either way. Um, and indeed, political leaders on both sides have said that to me. You know, one leading anti-independence leader, Philip Gomez, said, look, I don't think they're going to get 50%, but they can win without 50%. If they go up a few points from, say, 43 to 46%, um, that will be a psychological shock for us who are loyal to France, and people mm. will have to think seriously about the third referendum. We obviously want to go the other way. We want to you know, get a much bigger support, and that's obviously up for the people of New Caledonia, the long-term residents of New Caledonia, to decide in just 10 days' time. Um, but I, I think the point is people around the region are addressing this question of self-determination it's not just New Caledonia, but Bougainville and West Papua, people of Guam and others, people in this post-COVID world are going to say, how do we run our own affairs in a global context where, you know, the big countries are looking after themselves and their own interests? And that's a European phenomenon as well. You know, in Spain, the Catalan movement, uh, the Basque movement in uh, question in Scotland and the United Kingdom. I mean, there are many places in the world who feel that at a time of, of global uncertainty, to be able to run their own affairs rather than have some far distant administering power telling them what to do is an important question. Do people have the capacity to do that? That's where, um, as a neighbour, Australia has a role to play. New Caledonia is one of our closest neighbours.
um, we could and should be engaging more with New Caledonia, despite the language barrier, simply because there are many issues that people there are facing, the same ones that we are. Mm, <laughs> Climate change. So true. Yeah. How do you deal with? How do you deal with the transnational companies? You know, working on indigenous land. What about the Chinese? Um, all the questions that Australia faces um, are, are ones that that uh, are also being faced by our Pacific neighbours. And uh, there's enormous potential for us to work together, um, regardless of what people decide on the 4th of October. Mm, mm. Nick, it's been so wonderful to chat with you and to get a real insight into what's happening in New Caledonia. And um, I've found it so fascinating to hear about it and to get a better understanding of the, the kind of challenges and questions that the people of New Caledonia are facing. So thank you so much for joining us today and being so generous with your insights. Always happy. Uh, let's keep talking about the Pacific. You know, as I say, these are our neighbours, and one of the great failures of the the mainstream media in Australia is that they don't take the region seriously. And to get a sense of what's happening, uh, you know, uh, in the region is so important. Uh, um, and so, thanks for the opportunity to speak to people today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.